Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as the only person over 30 who understands Snapchat, but in my spare time, I talk tech and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can subscribe to Recode Decode at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. And while you're there, leave us a review. Today in the red chair is Jeremy Liu, a partner at Lightspeed Venture Partners, who joined the firm in 2006. He's invested in companies like Snapchat, Giphy, and The Honest Company. Before becoming a venture capitalist, he spent three years at AOL and Netscape. And we have a lot to talk about there. Jeremy, welcome to Recode Decode. Thanks, Kara. Um, so let's start with your background. I always like to know people's background. I don't think people don't know what venture capitalists did before they were venture capitalists a lot of the time. Tell me a little bit about how you got into tech. I took a bit of a circuitous route. Uh, I grew up in Australia, mm-hmm. and uh, and I went to uh, I studied mathematics there and linguistics, and then I joined McKinsey out of uh, undergrad uh, in Sydney, and then when they opened an office in Johannesburg after uh, Mandela was elected. Um, I, uh, I, I moved there for a little bit. Uh, and I had this boss who started and he left McKinsey to start City Search, one of the first generation right. city guide I businesses. I was around for that. Yeah, back in 95. And I didn't know anything about the this internet. This was who? This was? Charles Kahn. Charles Kahn. Yeah. He had the best name ever like, <laughs> in early internet, but go ahead. And uh, I didn't know anything about the internet, but I thought he was a great boss. So mm-hmm. when he left to do that, I gave him a call and asked him if I could come. And he said, sure. What prompted that? You just thought it was a cool idea or you just liked him? I really liked him. I thought he was an excellent boss mm-hmm. and I had learned a great deal from him. And I figured that if I could continue to learn from him, that would be terrific. So you moved to L.A. That's I moved to L.A. Was. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I remember visiting the city. I must have run into you at some point at, there because I talked to Charles a lot in those days. Yeah. It was uh, It was definitely an interesting uh, – because we, we were based in La Crescenta, mm-hmm. which is not what I had envisioned in uh, L.A. to look like. Right, yeah. You know, my, my view of L.A. was based on – Episodes of, you know, Beverly Hills 90210. Right. And uh, La Crescenta is Deep Valley. Mm-hmm. Very, very different. But mm-hmm. um, You did eventually move to the nice part, if I we, recall. I did eventually. And when nice Barry part. Diller bought the company, or somewhere in there. Yeah, so um, I was there for a couple of years, and actually there was a, another company called Zip2, mm-hmm. Elon Musk's first company. Right. And uh, there was a long period of time where City Search and Zip2 were looking at merging with each other. Actually right. had uh, a deal signed. Uh, and I was in charge of uh, the post-merger integration. Right. And I found myself up in uh, Silicon Valley going to visit the Zip2 offices when I was barred from entering the building uh, by security. Really? And I thought, this is unusual. Right, for an integration. <laughs> Very friendly. Usually, usually they let me in. I called to find out what was going on. It turned out the deal had fallen apart the night before and no one had told me. Oh, my God. Um, and so uh, my first interactions with Elon were... Uh, were sort of an odd one in that respect. He had you escorted out of the building. Yeah, exactly. You know, that happens to me a lot. I don't know why. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, so uh, actually after that fell apart, I ended up going to business school. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I came up here and went to uh, business school at Stanford. Why did you feel you needed to do that? What was the... You know, um, I had come from management consulting into this startup, and I was doing the sort of typical ex-consultant stuff. I was doing doing strategic planning. I was doing business development. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I want to get a little bit closer to the business. And um, one of the things that Charles said to me is like, if you want to get close to the business, you should work on the thing that's most important to us, and that's sales. And that's not what I'd thought of myself as doing, but uh, it's what I did. And so 
uh, I started selling websites door to door in 1996, which was not easy. Right. Um, we were literally knocking on doors and trying to convince everyone from cafes to oxygen tank resellers. The city search was essentially yellow pages, right? Some essentially. Essentially. It was, yeah. it was a, it was which a, is a, a direct, like, hand-to-mouth kind of sales process, the most dirty of sales processes. It is, uh, it is very much, you know, sitting down with someone and, and trying to convince them how you can help their business. Right. Uh, and City Search also had an events component, and had, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, the money was made by selling websites sure. to small businesses. Um, and I ended up leading the uh, the sales team for the new markets whenever we rolled out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I realized that there was this huge difference between this sort of McKinsey view of the world and the reality which was of running a business, which is that it was about people and customers and product and technology. It wasn't about spreadsheets and Excel and balance sheets and mm-hmm. uh, you know and projections. And I felt like if I was really going to understand that, because I'd really started to draw me in, um, then getting closer to Silicon Valley and to Stanford, which was really regarded as the epicenter of all that Absolutely. innovation, w- would be the best place for me mm-hmm. to be. And so that's what brought me to business school there. So you went to business school three years? Two years at business school. Two years, I'm sorry. Um, right. And um, you know, luckily enough, you know, that was the 98 to 2000 period. It was a very right. good time right. uh, to be in the Valley. City Search ended up merging with Ticketmaster Online, became yep. part of what's now IAC. It was USA Networks at the time. I ended up spending my summer between first and second year at USA Networks, and then I ended up joining them uh, when I graduated as VP of Strategic Planning. Mm-hmm. And I spent a few years there. So you did the Hollywood thing? Well, it was interesting because the, uh, that was the period of transition from USA Networks to IAC. Right. So we sold the cable channels, we sold the TV and the movie studios, um, we bought in Ticketmaster, we bought uh, Expedia, we bought Hotels.com. Right. It was that transition. Sure. And so that was a really fascinating experience, uh, you know, to get a seat at the table when some of these massive transactions were happening. Right, and Barry was trying to create a consortium of like-related companies. I forget, the Kiratsu. That was his kind of thing that he was talking about at the time. Yeah, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. And he saw a lot of um, – he was he was taking a bet on the trend, mm-hmm. right, that um, – Things were going. You know, the commerce was going to go interactive, and he had some insights from being early at QVC and HSN right. that shopping and commerce was a huge opportunity on the internet, and that's right. where he placed. He was his very bets. early. People don't realize how early. I'm not sure he took full advantage of his earliness, but he certainly was around compared to other Hollywood people. Uh, not only that, but you know, if uh, if you look at just IAC narrowly now, you know, you miss the fact that it spun off companies like Expedia, companies like TripAdvisor, mm-hmm. Match. You know, Ticketmaster. These are all sure part is. of the you know all part of the same company, and, mm-hmm. and he was always he's always been very good at capital market stuff and trying to figure out, you know, whether things are more valuable together or apart and, and splitting right. them appropriately. Right, right. And so I was working um, on a lot of these acquisitions, and uh, everything that I ended up buying ended up reporting to the president of IAC, um, John Miller. Right. So when John left to be CEO of AOL right. in two thousand two, I ended up following him. Wow. You follow uh, people, Jim. I do. <laughs> you know, uh, I, that was an interesting job for John. I remember him. His big line was when everyone was so mad because everyone was mad post merger and everyone was furious and essentially having baby tantrums, little executive baby tantrums. He had a sign or he kept telling people, I'm not the person who towed your car. Like it was after someone, he had seen that at a tow place and he was like, I, I didn't tow your car, so don't be don't fucking be furious at me, at me yeah. kind of thing. And yeah. so he tried. He tried to. That was a very fraught period. You wanted to walk into that AOL mess at the time? You know, w- what I found is that when I m- meet people that 
that have you know a, a certain level of insight and uh, that I feel like I can learn from. I want to just keep on learning from mm-hmm. them. Um, and early in my career, that that's a policy that served me well. Right. So you went to AOL, and what did you do there? Clean up. That's the clean up people there during that period. Uh, I was uh, SVP of corporate development and uh, chief of staff, the CEO. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so a lot of the work that we were doing was strategic in nature in that we were managing this transition from a bundled access plus content plus service company right. um, through a world where the core of that, which is the dial-up access, was becoming less and less relevant. Sure, sure. Um, and a lot of the work that we did was trying to think about could we build a media company mm-hmm. um, separate from the access business. And it was totally unclear at the mm-hmm. time if we could do that. Um, you know, this is the period where you had seen um, all of the pure play internet companies fall off cliffs. Right. So we decided that you you just had to do this. You couldn't you couldn't hold back the tide. This was right. what, what needed to be done, and there was pain that needed to be taken, but you had to do. Well, it. one of the problems was that they wouldn't do that at Time Warner. That wouldn't they wouldn't combine the content. It never got fully integrated or integrated at all in any way, or they didn't embrace any of the digital technologies, largely because of personalities, not because it wasn't the right idea. I mean, years later, that's exactly what they did, which was interesting. And you could sort of argue that Facebook was kind of AOL, the next version of AOL, or it still is in a lot of ways. I think that you you, you bring up a really good point. There's this sort of sway between, you know, walled gardens and the mm-hmm. content being brought inside to openness and then back to walled gardens. And so, yeah, there's definitely kind of cycles, you know, as people think about that. So what was it like wor- working for that? Because that was literally the worst period of AOLs. There was so much, you know, the, the disaster of the merger, Levin left, Case left, Pittman left, John was there. I think Ted was still around, Ted Leonsis was still around. But And then there was such an enmity from the Time Warner side for right. people. So how did you manage through that besides telling them it wasn't, I'm not Meyer Burlow? Like, I don't think that works necessarily. You know, um, John is a very likable guy. Yeah. And I think that helped a lot. The, you know, you're right that, like, people always sort of, uh, there, there was always a, 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 a level of kind of dissatisfaction because of what had happened in the past. But... I mean, you know, fundamentally, we needed to come to the conclusion that we did need to carve off the content business, but it was a big bet to do mm-hmm. it with AOL. And so what we ended up deciding to do was to run an experiment first, see if you could build a media business. Uh, and AOL had bought Netscape back in 99. Right. And so I dropped in to uh, run Netscape in about 2004 with the express mandate to see if we could build a standalone media business there. Which Netscape had tried to do previously. You know, so much of this is about timing, yeah. right? And the difference between trying to do that in 2004 versus in 2000. Yeah. Well, Yahoo beat them to it, and they helped Yahoo get to where they were by being on the Netscape browser. That's, that's kind of- very true. It's very true. And so what we discovered is from that 2000 to 2006 period is that, yes, you could, in fact, build a media business. And mm-hmm. that's what gave, um, you know, AOL a little bit more... Um, of the kind of data to say, okay, we should take this plunge. We we should totally sure. remove access from from content and build a content business on its own, and just accept the fact that it's going to go down before it goes back up. Again. Sure, and that's in fact what happened. What happened? So, how long did you stay there? There were a lot of people there at that during those various periods that have gone through AOL, like Chamath and all kinds of people have gone through the yeah, AOL that's grinder, right. which is kind of fascinating. Tina Sharkey, Tina Sharkey, yeah, yeah a whole uh, bunch of them. Jim Bankoff. Jim Bankoff. We were all, um, uh, you know, Chamath. We were all there at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how long did you stay, and what do you think you accomplished there? Because so much of the stuff, when I think about it because I'm so frigging old, is, like, 
things don't work and you guys just move on. But the thing before you're like, that was right. And then it's not right. And then that was right. And then that's not right. And you just move on from your schemes. I don't mean to say, you know what I mean? Like whatever scheme of the moment, and then you move to the next thing. What did you learn there? What do you think you actually accomplished? You know, the thing that really stuck with me about AOL and Netscape is that, uh, that the core user for technology is middle America. Mm-hmm. The, the things that we see here in Silicon Valley are not necessarily representative of the way that things look in middle America or what's going to appeal to middle America. Sure. And I'll give you a, an example. I was running Netscape, and, of course, Netscape was my homepage. And so I would see the same article every day as the header on the Netscape homepage. And I went to our editor-in-chief, and I said, why is this still... You know, yeah. in the middle of the homepage. It's been like the fourth day in a row. Right. There's something called news. You might want to change it, right? It, 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 was, it, was, a, it was a feature article. Yeah. It wasn't, and it wasn't right. a news article, but right. it was, it was um, you it was know, the same. it was service journalism, but it was the same. It was like, you know, top 10 ways to something. I don't know. And she said, I'll, I'll change it when people stop clicking on it. Uh. And I was like, well, that's actually a really good point. Okay, mm-hmm. carry on. <laughs> um, but the point is, you know, that we use the internet differently than normal people do, right? Yeah. It was my homepage and therefore I, and because I was the general manager of the site, I was seeing it 10 times a day, 20 times a day. And mm-hmm. so I was sick of seeing that same article. Mm-hmm. The normal people at that time were not logging onto the internet multiple times a day, right. every single day. And so it was new to them. right? And, and just that sort of understanding that middle America, you know, is interacting with technology dramatically different from the way that I am and that my intuition and my judgment, which had gotten me to the place that I had gotten to, was actually no good anymore. Right. I had to look at the data. That is something that has continued with me throughout my career. Using the data to, to do that. Yeah. Well, not paying attention to the middle America seems to be the theme this year, right? Not paying attention to... You know, um, yes. We'll get into that later. Yeah. We'll get into that later. Yeah. But look, it's, it, but look, it's a great point because, you know, if you if you lived here in Silicon Valley and, and you know, you, you sort of just ex- judged from the experiences that you had, you would think that the Tesla Model S is the top-selling car in America. Right, 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 exactly. Although if you lived in D.C., you'd think the BlackBerry was doing great. That's right. You know what That's I mean? exactly right. And in, and in both cases, you'd be 100% wrong. Had it. I was like, what? Like, what's going on? We don't use these um, covered wagons anymore. Let's try to move on to the next vehicle. It was kind of funny. Well, it's it's interesting because you're, the point you're making is that Washington D.C. is living in the past. Mm-hmm. Maybe Silicon Valley is living in a version of the future that isn't representative of the present. Present, exactly. So we're going to get to in the next section how you got to be a VC and talk about some of your investments and what happened after that because you were soon you soon became a VC, correct? Yeah. So um, I, I, right after I finished up at Netscape, um, I, I got a call from a friend from business school who asked me if I'd ever thought about venture capital. And what is your first thought? And then we'll get into that next. Uh, my first thought was like, wow, that sounds really interesting. Oh, really? Yeah. You didn't go, oh, my God, no, I want to stay an operator? Or were you sick of it? You know, I think that you have to know what you're good at. To be a, a really great operator, I think you need to have a singular focus mm-hmm. and um, level of like leadership and management and charisma that you know, can make you incredibly successful. And I've seen what good looks like, and mm-hmm. I'm okay, mm-hmm. but I'm nowhere as good as the, as the best you know, operators and CEOs in the world. All right. When we get back, we're going to talk to Jeremy Liu about how he became a venture capitalist, and he seems happy with it, which is unusual. But we'll get back to that. For companies to succeed today, they need builders, and builders need tools that allow them to innovate. The problem is most cloud vendors don't offer the range of tools builders are looking for. Amazon Web Services is a leading cloud service provider giving builders the reliability and security they need. AWS pioneered cloud computing over 10 years ago to help any business from the smallest startups to the biggest global enterprises create their own applications and manage their workloads. 
By listening to what customers want, AWS is adding more features and services than any other cloud provider while consistently reducing prices. So if you'd rather focus on creating a business instead of an infrastructure, check out podcast.aws. Learn how AWS can help you build a better future today and let builders build. The show is brought to you by Blue Apron. Blue Apron's mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. Not all ingredients are created equal. Fresh, high-quality ingredients make a real difference, so it's important to know where your food comes from. Blue Apron has established partnerships with over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the United States. Beef, chicken, and pork come from responsibly raised animals, and their produce is sourced from farms that practice regenerative farming. For less than $10 per person per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals like cashew chicken stir-fry with tango mandarins and jasmine rice. That sounds delicious. Or this one, roasted pork with apple, walnut, and farro salad. That also sounds delicious. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash decode. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash decode. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. We're here with Jeremy Liu of Lightspeed Ventures. He is a venture capitalist, but he had a lot of experience before operating companies and working at AOL and Escape and a whole bunch of stuff. So you came here and became a VC. Did you have any experience or what was that like, that transition? It was difficult. Mm -hmm. Why is that? You know, um, I think that to be a good operator, you uh, you learn certain habits. Mm-hmm. Um, you know things like make decisions quickly, because if you make the wrong decision, you can always Change reverse it. it. Right. Um, things like if you see a problem, jump in and try to fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, and things like you know making sure you hit budget and hit plan, and you know really being focused on what can go wrong and how you can um, how you can accommodate that so that you always hit plan. Mm-hmm. You make the month, make the quarter, make the year. Right. I think those instincts actually can lead you astray in venture capital. So, for instance, you know, let's talk about making decisions quickly. You, know, you can't unmake dis- an investment decision right. as a venture capitalist. Once you make that decision, you're in, you're living with it for the next seven, eight years. And right. so, it teaches you to, you know, it, it actually uh, rewards you to just be a little bit more thoughtful and and um, and uh, do your diligence a little bit more. Although a lot of people feel like venture capitalists are kind of sheeple. They just follow along with trends and things like that. And that's the, the thing they have a hard time resisting. Yeah, I think that there are lots of different ways to do venture capital. Mm-hmm. Um, if you do early stage venture capital, you tend to need to have a perspective on the future that's independent. Right. Um, if you're going to do momentum investing, you know, where you can identify winners and, uh, and jump into them, then uh, it's a different approach. And I think there are lots of different ways to make money. So let's talk about your approach when you started and then talk about some of your investments. Obviously, Snapchat is. But you, we've talked about Bitcoin. We've ta- I know you were certain about that. Although the prices are up right now again. We've talked about all kinds of stuff. You've been in Giphy, Honest, which is they're all different. They're all kind of different. So talk a little bit about how you look at venture capital when you started and right now. Right now, I'd say that I think about consumer technology's popular culture. Mm-hmm. So if you're thinking about popular culture, you know, the, the early adopters of popular culture tend to be young women. And so uh, if I see a product, a service, you know, an app that is really taking off amongst young women and taking off because of genuine word of mouth, then that's something that gets me really excited. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, I think that's predictive of the future. Uh, and, How and fascinating I, that most venture capitalists are not young women. They're well, usually old white men. And, and that's why your judgment mm-hmm. is actually no good anymore. Right. Now, this is different from the first boom, mm-hmm. right? In you know, 96, 97, 98, the internet was 
these sort of techie early adopters and Silicon Valley was actually a completely representative of what was happening. the early adopter market. Right. And so people's really judgment and intuition was perfect and they got very reliant on that to pick companies. Uh, but today, where everybody's got a smartphone, everybody's got fast um, you know, broadband wireless access, you're talking about middle America and if you are not representative of middle America and in particular if you're not representative of the early adopters of popular culture, then yeah, you gotta look at the data. Right. And that's why I think you're seeing an explosion of startups in New York and in LA, which have historically been right, the places behind. that lead popular culture in America. And have been behind in the first one. That's exactly right. And it's because the barriers to entry have dropped. The technology needs have dropped. If, when, you know, back in the day when you, know, you needed 30 engineers just to launch a website, mm-hmm. uh, there's only one place in the world that you could find enough engineers who knew enough about it to start a company, and that was here. Today, if you want to build an e-commerce site, you can get it off of Shopify off the shelf. If you want to build an app, you know, you can you know, read some blogs and, um, figure, and, it out. and figure it out. You know, and, yeah. and, and anybody can, can do that. And you have AWS and everything else. And so, so with the barriers to entry from a technology perspective coming down, it's the unique insight to popular culture that becomes the unique resource. And, um, and I think that we are actually seeing more of that from the traditional centers of popular culture than from Silicon Valley. So talk to me about Snapchat. How did you get into that? That's obviously the story of the year, probably this year because of the public offering and everything else. What was your instinct there? Because a lot of people didn't get that company initially when it started, although it certainly boomed rather quickly once people did. You know, it was a bit of an ordeal to finally get a meeting with Evan. <laughs> uh-huh. um, but when I did... Um, what did you like? What did you see what, that you wanted a meeting so badly? I, I wish I told you that I had the insight that I knew as soon as I saw the product what it could be. But the reality is that it's a social product. And so unless you have a lot of friends using the product organically, you're not using it. You, you, you don't actually understand how it's used by, no, by the core audience. Normals, you can say it, normal people. But, but well, at the time, it was, it was primarily used by young teens, right. women young women teens Mm -hmm. and uh, I don't hang around with a lot of young women teens I'm glad you don't Jeremy so (laughs) um, and so you know it it, it, there was no way that I could have organically understood what that engagement process looked like but what I could do was open up the flurry analytics dashboard with Evan and look at the 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 numbers and see you know 50% month-on-month growth and see engagement and retention metrics that were like multiples of what we, we might expect from other companies. So something was working, and it didn't matter that I didn't understand it right away. Mm-hmm. It didn't matter that my intuition was bad. Right, that you what mattered, I don't get this product or I don't. Was, what mattered was the data. Mm-hmm. And the next question is like, okay, this is clearly working. Why is it working? Right. Uh, and Evan could explain it. He had some really unique insights that said why Snapchat was taking off at the time, and we listened and we said, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. You seem to have unique insight, which is going to lead not just to one good idea, but to many good ideas in the future. And, uh, and that's, that's proven to be the case. So why wasn't that possible here? What, what was his unique insight that was not happening at, say, you know, Facebook sort of sold itself as a utility and still does to this day, um, which is sort of a dull way to, you know, it's like, oh, it's a utility, which sounds like an electric company or something else. What was the unique difference there? Because, you know, obviously all Facebook does right now is copy Snapchat or, or it seems to bar, borrow is the way they like to say it, borrow ideas and stuff. So what was the, why was it un- incapable of companies here to understand that? The imitation is a sincerest form of flattery. Right. It's also um, just imitation. It's also just imitation. I think a lot of this comes down to Evan being a pretty special 
person. You know, most of us, we have we, we use these sort of unconscious metaphors mm-hmm. as we think about new companies or new businesses or new products. Sure. Even the best product management visionaries in the world oftentimes rely on these, you know, unconscious metaphors. And so a good example might be um, your friendster started doing reverse chronological order in the feed. Mm-hmm. And ever since then, every other social network has done reverse chronological right. order in the feed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Evan comes along and says, well, how do people tell stories? They tell them beginning, middle, end. Reverse chronological order is end, middle, beginning. Right. Hmm, that doesn't make sense. Maybe we'll do ours, beginning, middle, end. And so that's a great example where people never even question the metaphor. Mm-hmm. They just did what had been done before. And Evan comes along and says, well, what makes more sense? Another great example is with uh, video chat in Snapchat. Um, even if you think about FaceTime or any other video chat uh, application, it borrows a phone metaphor, right? It rings to see if you're there, then right. you pick it up, and then you're both talking to each other. Right, uh, so it's asynchronous. It, well, it, it acts as if you don't know whether or not the other person is there. Sure, yeah. And, and Evan's observation is if you're messaging with somebody, you know they're there, so it doesn't need to ring. Right. And it doesn't need to be two-way either like right. it's fine for, send a message for, for one for one person to be you know video and the other person texting back like it's not like he questioned these rules like he saw that there was a construct a metaphor that was constraining what could be and he starts from first principles and asks himself what would people do right and and this is it's not something that just happened once it's happened many times right, now. it has he it's, really is it's, quite it's a bit of a pattern mm-hmm what does that do? What prevents, so you live in Silicon Valley, what prevents that from happening here? Because it seems, maybe it's just me, I feel like the innovation has dried up quite a bit. Like you don't see a lot of fresh ideas or feel like there's freshness. There's a lot of recycling, a lot of just feature creep, I guess. I don't know what else to call it, but it doesn't feel like, I think probably Snapchat was the freshest idea to come for a long time. And obviously it's taken off and people are copying it. But what do you, how do you imagine you keep that innovation mentality going you know i think uh and people talk about with apple right now and everything else so i think on the infrastructure and enterprise side you're mm-hmm. still seeing a ton of innovation based right. in silicon valley because it does require people to like slack you know, and things like that um or, or you know app dynamics which mm-hmm. just got acquired or uh you that's know, a lightspeed company, it's a lightspeed okay. company. <laughs> uh, now that you mention it yes it is um but you know my true infrastructure and enterprise that innovation is still happening in silicon valley but as I said before, you know, because popular technology has become, uh, because consumer technology become popular culture, you really need to understand popular culture to be able to have an insight about it, and then to be able to drive new innovation from right. that. And I think Silicon Valley is such an isolated bubble. You know, our reality is not the reality of, you know, a normal American in normal America, mm-hmm. and um, and that is what is preventing as much insight and therefore innovation happening here. Right. And how does that change? How does that occur? Because, you know, every, you can get this idea of the product visionary like Evan or Steve Jobs or whoever, fill in the blank. But it doesn't necessarily have to come from one person. Like, But if you just have one person doing it and now everyone is copying that, that's not innovation. That's just copy. You know what I mean? When I say I make a joke about copying, but it, do, it doesn't add to the next, you know, you, you think of artists and they, they copy each other and then they innovate. There doesn't seem to be that second part happening. Well, you know, I think that the, the, the more important point is that innovation has been happening everywhere. But, you know, people have been having these insights, but they haven't had the ability to act on it right. before. And so we, saw, we only saw successful innovation here in Silicon Valley because you had the overlap of 
someone having an interesting idea and being able to go build it. Now that people can build it every, everywhere, you're seeing innovation happening everywhere. I mean, you see Supercell springing up in Finland, mm -hmm. right? Um, you see um, Blue Apron springing up in Brooklyn. And so again, this opportunity for people to have an insight and turn it into a technology-enabled mm -hmm. company can happen everywhere. And it, it's fine that it doesn't happen in Silicon Valley. Right. So how does that change your life as a VC? Because a lot of VCs like being in Silicon. They like it here. They like the Iron Triangle of Stanford, the startups, school, you know, the big companies, and the VCs again. Or I don't know about the triangle, but it's a it's an interlocking group of people who socialize in the same places. And so, how do you adapt as a venture capitalist then? You know, um, I remember. When I first joined the industry more than ten years ago, people said that they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't, uh, if they couldn't drive to a board meeting, That's they wouldn't make an investment. Yeah. yeah, well, it's and and so the reality is, like, I have one board seat now in the entire Bay Area. Mm -hmm. I've invested in Toronto. I've invested in DC. I've invested in London. I've a lot of investments in LA and in New York. I've looked at investments in Chattanooga. I've looked at investments in um, you know uh, outside the Walmart headquarters uh, in Arkansas. Bentonville. It's uh, Fayetteville, the next one down. Mm -hmm. But the but my point is, like, you got to get on a plane. You got to go yeah. meet these entrepreneurs who are having these ideas all over the country, all over the world. There's no monopoly on innovation in Silicon Valley. So talk briefly, and then we'll get in our next part of where things are going, and a little bit more about your other investments, um, and what how you are thinking about this. But what talk a little bit about that about Los Angeles because you know they did have they MySpace was big and then it wasn't. Demand Media was big and then it goes now it's Snapchat. There's usually a single company, but and a small ecosystem around it. You're talking about this idea of diffused innovation all over the place. Is Snapchat enough to do that to the Los Angeles scene? Because you're one of the, there's a few venture capitalists down there like Mark Schuster and, and others, but there's not that much. It doesn't seem like there's that much going on with the people here reaching out. I have five uh, portfolio companies. Which ones are there? Down there. So uh, Snapchat, mm -hmm. Whisper, mm -hmm. Zest Finance, Honest Company, and Holler. Okay. So there's more than one. There's right. like there's a lot going on down there, mm -hmm. and there are plenty of other great companies down there. I think Parachute Home is doing some great stuff. I think you know, Sheets, right? In Sheets, yeah, mm -hmm. and Home Home uh, Homeware. Um, I think uh, uh, Laurel and Wolf is a really interesting company. You know, uh, Meundies down. There's like a lot of really interesting mm -hmm. companies being built down in LA. So yeah, I mean, and again, I, these are all driven by consumer insights. Right. Right. No, but at the same time, something like Honest grows big. Rumors of sale possibility of not selling and stuff like that. How do you get them past that point? Now, obviously, Snapchat has, has broken speed velocity, whatever you call it, and they're going up. But how do you move them to the next level when they're in these places? You know, uh, all startups go through zigs and zags. It's, mm -hmm. it's not dependent on their, their location. I think Snapchat is one of the few exceptions where there's been very few zigs. It's all mm -hmm. been zags. Mm -hmm. They get brought through by maintaining the vision of the founders and, uh, and you know, keeping that as the North Star, and when things go a little bit sideways, then trying to readjust and move back towards that North Star. And that's the same whether that company's in Silicon Valley or in LA or in Fayetteville. What are you looking for now? How do you look at the scene now? Because there hasn't been many IPOs. There are obviously Snapchats on that, probably Airbnb and Uber. Um, how do you look at where we are right now and, and where venture capital is and investment? Because most people seem to be in a doldrums of some sort, although money's being raised and people are raising money, but there was a little bit of a, of a hot market and then it's cooled a little bit. Would you agree with that or not? I think that um, you know, the level that we're making investments has been very steady mm -hmm. um, over the last few years and we project it to be steady going forward. And I think if you look at you know, a lot of our peer early stage venture capital firms, you would see the same thing. 
because innovation cycles are sort of unrelated to you know Investment the Dow. Side. Right. Um, now, what is related is later stage investing when you find new people coming in who have historically not invested in venture. And so that's, I think, driven up some of the enthusiasm yeah. that you saw in 14 and 15 that sort of tapered sure. off in 16. Yeah, I remember hearing complaints from when Jeff Yang was going on, like, these people, they're overbang, ah, like, it, it got out of hand from what I can understand. Um, and so, you know, what that's left is the, the core venture capitalists who, who were making investments before, were making investments now, and will be making investments in the future, continuing to invest. And our job is to find that innovation. You know, on the consumer side, I think um, there's a couple of areas where I'm you know, I'm seeing a lot of opportunity. One is around um, the migration of video consumption from television to right. um, mobile and online. And, and this is something that's been happening for a long time, right? Like YouTube got bought in 2006. Sure. But it was only last year that we saw cable households drop for the first time. Right. And I think that's because if you were 14 years old in 2006, you're 24 years old now, you've never had a TV habit. You're forming your, uh, your household for the first time, and so you don't get cable. No. And so what that means is that all these new TVOS players, the Netflix and the Hulus and the Amazon Prime videos of the world, are now no longer a supplement to TV. They're a replacement for TV. Mm -hmm. And that's creating this dynamic where if you think about TV, which is five hours a week, uh, five hours a day of consumption for the average American. Which is depressing, but go ahead. It's it's a combination of appointment TV Mm -hmm. and ambient TV. So appointment TV, you're giving your full attention to. It's the Game of Thrones, it's uh, it's Westworld, that sort of stuff. Ambient TV is something that's on in the background while you're doing something else. You're watching Good Morning America while you're getting the kids ready to go to school in the morning. You've got the view on while you're doing mm-hmm. some work around the house, or you're watching The Daily Show while you're unwinding. Or cable shows. I turn them off now because they're so noisy. But And so this is the thing, is like they're company, mm-hmm. right? And if you think about you know where the equivalent of ambient TV is for Netflix or for Amazon or for Hulu, they don't really exist. It doesn't exist. And so now that those services need to stand alone, I think there's actually an opportunity for the sort of ambient TV use huh. case to come on to them. And so, you know, uh, so we invested in John Steinberg, uh, who is building Cheddar, Cheddar. Right. CNBC, over the top, uh, is a sort of idea right. aimed at millennials. And that's a good example of an ambient television network that, you know, if you believe that all of these new TVOSs are going to have to pull in that ambient TV, they're going to have an equivalent of live. maybe the behavior's gone? Because I'm thinking of my own kids who love, by the way, Snapchat. That's all they do. Snapchat, YouTube, and pay-per-view. I mean, they do use cable, but it's all pay. It's, there's not a bit of ambient. They don't just, they specifically watch, and then they don't. Then they stop. And when they're on the phones, it's Snapchat is their entertainment, or they, you know, my son, um, he uses Discover. He uses all kinds of stuff. I know that's been an up and down thing for Snapchat, but he definitely uses it. So and he doesn't have an ambient uh, habit at all, except that he goes, he uses the internet. You know what I mean? That he's using these things, but they're highly specific. I think that's right, and I think that a little bit of that is an ages and stages thing. Mm-hmm. So you know, uh, when when you're how old is your son? Uh, 14. 14. So when you're 14, you have more time than money, mm-hmm. and so you're looking for ways to to be drawn in and mm-hmm. consumed and entertained. If you're in your, if you're, millennials is 15 to 35 now, mm-hmm. right? So if you're 30, you know, 80% of babies born in America are, um, are born to millennial parents. So millennials are having babies, they're having families, and they are starting to deal with this issue of like, I need to get the kids ready for school in the morning and I can't do that while glued to my phone. Mm-hmm. I can't do that um, while 
watching something on YouTube. But just having that sort of ambient company mm -hmm. is comforting for a lot of people. And so the big question for me is, does that actually have to be video? And right. that's, that's a bet that we're making. But as we've seen uh, Alexa really kind of take off in the last little while, there's an open question as to whether it's an audio solution that provides audio, that. Audio is real. Yeah, especially podcasts. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is a great point. No, we're doing I, great. It's but, fascinating. But, but my, my point is, like, most podcasts actually require you to pay attention, mm -hmm. right? The classic NPR-style podcast, you can't Listen do away. other things, right, right? While, mm -hmm. while, while you're listening to the podcast. And so even the audio experience is going to have to change it's going to be more like music in that you can do other things while you're listening to mm -hmm. music. But, um, you know, you're seeing innovation in podcasting. You're seeing fiction, you know, as a, as, a, uh, as a genre really start to pick up in podcasting. With um, things like Alexa, you have the ability for interactivity, mm -hmm. which is completely, you know, not being utilized by podcasts today, by right. audio today. Mm -hmm. And so these are the areas where I think there's a lot of opportunity. The use case is so ambient, ambient entertainment. I've never heard that from anyone. Ambient, you're into ambient television. I, is, I think there's a huge opportunity. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because older people, it's something that older people do. Like my mother's got Fox News on all the time, which makes her homicidal most of the time. But um, but that's how they behave. But I don't see manifesting in my children. Do you? And, and, and I think that's because you're conflating the television mm -hmm. with the use, right? right? Because that's the only place you can get it Well, I think the only way it becomes like that is if it's a heads-up display, if it's around your eyes all the time. You know what I mean? Because you can't really – I mean, you do walk around – San Francisco and everybody's doing this, staring at their staring at their phones, which That's is right. fascinating. My new game I tell people is where I, I literally walk around San Francisco and when people are doing that, especially crossing the street, which drives me crazy. I go, hey, 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 like that. And they're like, Ooh. I'm like, stop it. Like, stop it. And it's really interesting. Like, it, Are you, are you going to make that a law when you're mayor? Yes, I am. Yes, you're I like, am. You may not have... look at your phone. If you do, you'll be arrested and thrown to the ground. Yes, that's my, my first thing. Perfect. I think people would I think I would win in five seconds if that was my platform. So, you know, you, you raise a great point, but I think, like, we're sitting in this room right now, and there's mm -hmm. a screen over there, mm -hmm. right? There's a big Dell screen over there, and it's blank. Right. Right. And that's because most screens today are treated more like tele uh, like computer monitors than right. like televisions, right, right? Right. If that was a television, in most offices, it would be tuned to CNBC with the sound off, right? Right. Because it's a computer, it either has a screensaver on it mm -hmm. or it's off, right? And so I think Did there's it's actually a really small switch between those two behaviors, mm -hmm. because you know every screen is internet connected now, sure. right? So. Um, it doesn't have to be, you know, the full attention that the, that a, that a, that a, that a uh, phone demands. Right. There is no way to, to consume that ambiently. But there are enough screens in any given environment. Right on the wall. Like, they'll be on the wall. The walls will be screens. So talk a little bit about commerce, because that's something that's been up and down for a lot of people. There's been a lot of commerce disasters this year. One King's Land, like, tons of them all over the place. And sales, you know, Jet.com was it, and then it sold. It clearly sold because it wasn't going to beat Amazon. I know they declared victory and ran around, but it, three billion isn't bad. It isn't, but it, it's pretty good. Actually, they wanted something else. Let's. They were hoping for something else. It's nicer to be Amazon than sell to to whoever. I get it, but the goal was something else. I, I believe, from what I understand. I, I, I agree with you, but you know, if your failure is a three billion dollar exit, it's yes, not I get a terrible that. I get failure. it. I get it. I know you all declare victory and move on. But but how do you look at commerce? How, what is your because Amazon is dominating everything pretty much. I mean, we all live in Amazon's world at this point in the commerce space. How do you look at it? You know, if you take the long view and you say, ten years from now, will we be buying more stuff online and on phones than we are today? Then I think the obvious the answer is obviously yes, mm -hmm. right? And then you say, well, look, how do you build a business that doesn't get crushed by Amazon? Mm -hmm. 
And I think what people are starting to realize is that selling other you know, products that are made by other people, that's a really tough business to compete against Amazon against. Mm-hmm. Um, you really need to build a brand, be vertically integrated. and um, It's just your own stuff that you can't get anywhere else. Well, that allows you to um, have a little bit more control over your destiny. You can very well sell that through other channels in the future. But if you get born online, you have the advantage of fast iteration to get product market fit. Mm-hmm. And once you've got that product market fit, then you know you can continue to drive direct-to-consumer online, but also you can start thinking about other channels as well. Right. And you know that's what Honest did. It's what Bonobos did. We recently made an investment in a company called Hungry Root, which is what trying to do? be... So they are you know, um, trying to reinvent convenience food. So if you think about Campbell's Soup or mm-hmm. Lean Cuisine, right. um, they don't really resonate with the millennial consumer. No, they're gross. And so you know, what uh, Hungry Root has been doing is trying to develop fresh, healthy versions of convenience food right. that you can keep in your fridge mm-hmm. and within six or seven minutes have something that's ready to eat. I see. So better Lean Cuisine, essentially. I, I'm not sure they would use those exact words, <laughs> but but my point, I'm, I'm not... 100% I, less gross. <laughs> I don't want to specifically focus on, on Hungry Root. It's just mm-hmm. this idea that you can start online and then you can, you right. have so much more data. So so, sure. what, so what these guys can do, for instance, that, you know, another company, another food company can't do is they can see what sells and then what sells again, right? right? How reviews compare to that sure. and so they can start tweaking recipes and they can get the product what's the, market what's fit. the retail company that does that with shirts and t-shirts they're like competing against the gap there's one that millennials love um i'm blanking on the name it's like that they're making everlane everlane yeah 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 and so you know this is a, a tactic that can be applied across many many categories mm-hmm. then if you can build that brand equity directly mm-hmm. then uh you know for a start you have a lot so more you're looking margin. for fresh ideas on on things when, when you're thinking about that yeah, look, I think that's one area where um, you can play the trend of e-commerce without having to worry about what do you e- think of Amazon. As much. Where is that? What do you think of it when you think about it? Because you do a lot of commerce investments. They are a um, extraordinary competitor, um, and I would prefer not to be going head to head against mm-hmm. them in general. And that's why I think that the bigger opportunity for startups is in people who are going to build these uh, vertically integrated. Uh, mobile native, uh, online native brands. Sure. A couple more things I want to talk about. Uh, Bitcoin. You were the you were the first person to talk about Bitcoin with me. Yeah. How do you feel about it? It really hasn't quite taken off, but it, it sort of has. It. You know, um, back when it started out, people thought that Bitcoin was going to reinvent payments. Mm-hmm. That is that is one hundred percent not happened. Right. What it has happened is that it is being used as a store of value in countries where people don't trust their local currency. Right. Or their local government. Um, so here in America, you'd be you'd be crazy to store your. Work. The dollar seems to work. The dollar yeah. lo- works pretty well, right? right? The pound is great. The euro, the yen, like these are you know these first world currencies, um, like you you can have great confidence in them. But if you live in a place like Argentina that's had double digit inflation forever and anticipates double digit inflation forever, you know the volatility that goes both up and down actually seems okay relative to something that's only going to go down in value. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of countries that have that you know, long-term persistent inflation problem. Or if you live in a place where there's real questions about um, the stability of the government, mm-hmm. you know, um, and... You mean like in the U.S.? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I have a little more faith in our systems. All right. But, um, you know, if, if you were living in the Ukraine right now, you know, it's it's not certain that in 10 years' time, mm-hmm. Ukraine will be an independent no, it will country. Not and if it's not, it's pretty certain that you don't get to trade in 
you know, Ukrainian, the Ukrainian whatevers, whatevers for rubles. It would be rubles. Most likely. Mm-hmm. And so you start to think about, you know, what are ways that I can, you know, store my value in a way that mm-hmm. couldn't, it's not going to get wiped out overnight because of a change of government or because tanks are rolling over the border. Mm-hmm. And there are countries so in the Middle that East that look like that. Now Bitcoin is a safety mechanism. If you live in a country is that has that turmoil. Is it a bigger business? Because we were in a bunch of them. What was the one, the main one you were in? We are the lead investors in blockchain, blockchain. which is the biggest Bitcoin wallet in sure. the world. And we are seeing exactly that. We're seeing that gro- the growth in developing world countries that have either economic turmoil or political turmoil. We've seen uh, usage uh, double over the course of the last 12 months, over on top of a double from mm-hmm. the previous year. What we're not seeing is that growth in the U.S. In the U.S. In or unusual, so like regular commerce transactions. In the place where we, you know, in the place, you know, it's just like uh, we said before, you know, if you live in Silicon Valley, you don't necessarily see what Sure. Or the rest the of the other world use works. cases. Yep, absolutely. Exactly. I don't want to finish up with sort of the current. Uh, I don't want to. You know, I'm not going to drag you into politics unless you want to be. A lot of people want to be these days. But how does that that things change under Trump? How do you look at? I mean, obviously the tech leaders walked up there and did their walk of shame into Trump Tower and stuff like that. There's a lot of anti-regulatory stuff that's going on that is good for Silicon Valley. There's the repatriation. What do you see during this administration? How do you does it change your investing? ideas right now? Or are you just going to just keep just investing? Because clearly certain things are going to do better than others. Or do you anticipate any differences? You know, um, I moved to America in uh, 96. Oh, an immigrant. And uh, we get the job done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, said. And I only got naturalized last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got naturalized specifically to vote in this election. Right. And, uh, and my candidate did not win. Right, right. But I do have faith in the institutions, and I think that, uh, and these institutions include the fourth estate, mm-hmm. right? That I think the country can survive four years of presidency, of bad presidency. It has in the past, mm-hmm. and it will in the future, and it self-corrects, like all good systems yeah. should. And so, you know, I also think that, you know, as a, specifically around investing, the micro trumps the macro. Mm-hmm. I'm more focused on... Interesting. What do you mean by that? Well, I'm more focused on this founding team and their insight or the technology that they've built or um, the growth that they're seeing than what Whatever's the, ha- the China noise. Right. You know, trade dispute is going to mean. Do you, you see know, a we, more we serious in, creator or do you see more frivolous creator? What do you imagine? It seems a little more serious. It's around drones and cars and healthcare and... You know, there, I think there has been a widening of the aperture um, because of some technology advancements, specifically around AI, mm-hmm. um, and as it relates to um, computer vision and so forth in the last few years, um, that is now allowing a whole bunch of new, mm-hmm. um, you know, things like drones and autonomous vehicles mm-hmm. and, and um, applications to healthcare and so forth. But I think it's a widening of the aperture. I don't think it's a replacement. I see. Um, and frankly, in the consumer world, entertainment of some sort has always been always a key been driver. Good. Key so. driver. Um, my last question is this. You brought up this concept of not thinking about middle America, thinking about other places, looking outside the bubble of Silicon Valley. And one of the accusations that's made about Silicon Valley is that it's utterly ignored most of the country in development and locating its businesses and doing manufacturing. Does Silicon Valley have to do that? Do you think they will change that? Have they not been paying enough attention? And what do you imagine? Or will it be like Apple will open a small plant and then have a little walkthrough with Trump and that'll be that and there'll be 500 jobs that don't really move the needle? 
Well, um, as I said before, I think that that innovation on the consumer side is becoming much more dispersed, and that's mm -hmm. creating opportunities all over the country. You look at a, you know, a Blue Apron that was started in Brooklyn, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, or Brooklyn's you, like here, essentially, with, well, with, um, with bat worse beards, essentially. Uh, at what point do you want to stop saying it's like here, though, right? Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, is, is Chicago say, like here? Is yeah. Miami like here? Is yeah. Atlanta like here? Yeah, I'm talking about Rust Belt. I'm talking about, like, Chattanooga, Tennessee, or parts of Michigan that aren't. These are the areas that voted for Trump, for example. These are areas that have long forgotten and are not on the... You know, I'm of the feeling that this election was about people who believe in the future and have benefited from it and those who have not. And and I think, how do you pull along the ones that have not? And does Silicon Valley have a job to do that? So or I, a responsibility to do that? I think that you're not giving enough benefit to the people who are living there and their ability to build companies on their own. Mm -hmm. uh, when I went to Fayetteville mm -hmm. in Arkansas, I went to see a, con a company called Country Outfitters. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a company that had grown to $100 million in revenue on very little capital, selling cowboy boots and, and Western lifestyle wear to people all across America. Right. Um, and Probably the world. And you know that they, they figured that out on their own. It wasn't mm -hmm. because like someone transplanted from Silicon Valley with an idea. Mm -hmm. like. And that innovation is happening. You go to you look at a company like Bellhops, right, mm -hmm. which is a, trying to build a marketplace for uh, uh, movers, mm -hmm. right, and, and that's based in Chattanooga. So I, I think you know we don't we should not regard that as an obligation for Silicon Valley to save the rest of the country. The rest of the country is capable of saving itself, mm -hmm. and and they're doing that. And now that the technology um, requirements to start new companies has come down, and it's become about the insight. You're seeing those companies now. They got to grow. And so they'll be more obvious seven years from now than they are today, right? Because the companies we see today was founded seven years ago. Um, so you got to allow that time to pass. Sure. But I have great confidence that the ingenuity and the insights of Americans across the country, not just in Silicon Valley, are going to generate a lot of really wonderful companies. And I'm on planes a lot of the time trying yeah, to meet trying them. To them. All right, my very last question, because that just occurred to me, I had a really interesting discussion with someone from Facebook when I was recently uh, abroad about the fake, everyone's arguing about the fake news and things like that. And so they, you know, Facebook has slowly come around to the fact that perhaps they have some impact. You know, oh, no, no, we don't. We're just a platform. It's not us. That was our first. Now it's like, okay, perhaps we might have some responsibility for this. And it, 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 when you argue with them, it really does, it, it's either they're lying to you or they just really believe this, that they don't have responsibility. And so the argument I finally made was like, you know what, my kids like Snapchat because it's not the cesspool you're starting to become because they do verified publishers, you know who you're getting. And I said, at the very least, Snapchat's become a place that's pleasant to be, like you get what you want, you get quality stuff. And so is that a danger for not just, you know, Twitter's on the far end of hellscape at this point. And then you have Facebook, which you're starting to see glass on the on the grounds of the suburb. You know, suddenly the suburb is a little more trashy, like, oh, how did that go? Why is that garbage can overflowing over there? Why am I reading about Hillary Clinton being a lizard person? Why is that happening? And then you go to Snapchat, which is, you know, I think, do you feel like consumers are going to flee the noise? And I would think something like Snapchat or people that verify publishers or start to clean it up a little bit, have a better experience, perhaps. I mean, that's an easy one for you. Of course, yes, Snapchat's so much better. But how do you look at that? But look, as you said, Snapchat has made that move. But I do think that there is a distinction between news and entertainment. Mm -hmm. And what a lot of people call fake news is really entertainment. Right? Mm -hmm. People aren't necessarily 
Well, it's toxic entertainment, but yes. Yeah. It, it is. People are, are turning to that because it is validating their own beliefs, which makes them happy. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and that's kind of what I call right. entertainment. But other than like seeking out mm-hmm. new information to form a decision, which is more like news. Now, sometimes those two things happen in the same place. Right. They, they may, they, both of those things happen in Twitter. Both these things happen mm-hmm. um, in Facebook. Facebook. And to be honest, both things happen in Snapchat too, but the entertainment is of a different nature. Mm-hmm. You know, it's what's happening with the Kardashians. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily, you know, around politics. But when politics becomes entertainment, which it is for a lot of people, you know, then those lines can get a little blurry. But I think you just need to pull back a little bit and understand that they understand that it's not news. For them, it's entertainment, too. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Do you imagine that there's an opportunity for people that do create a better, more pleasant environment right now? Um, I think that, as I said before, people prefer entertainment. Like in consumer world, entertainment always seems to win. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'm not sure. You're not sure. All right. My very last question I ask everybody, if you had to think of a mistake you've made or maybe a great thing you've done, either one. What would be something you did that you would say, okay, this is what I did and I should have done this and this is what I learned from it? I know I don't want a little learning moment here, but you know what I mean? Like yeah. I really fucked up there. And Well, um, you know, one of my biggest regrets is um, not chasing Yelp harder mm-hmm. uh, in their Series B. Why is that? And, you know, um, I took a lot of actions that I thought sort of um, indicated how excited I was about the company. Mm-hmm. And I've had, I had always at that point felt that actions speak louder than words. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just hadn't spoken enough. I hadn't been as clear enough about how excited I was about that company. Uh, and it turns out that words actually speak louder than actions <laughs> in a lot of cases. And so you so, didn't like your honey bag Tam. You should have just gone in and said, I love you, I love you, I love No, you, you know, I mean, like, I spent a lot of time with the company and talked them through a lot of their sales stuff because it was very relevant to the sales businesses course, that I'd City run Search, at yeah. CitySearch and try to deliver a lot of value, make some useful introductions. And I didn't just say, I want you, I want you. Jeremy, this is the most exciting company I've met in a long time, and I want to be an investor in your company, and I want to help you build it. Mm -hmm. And tell me what I need to do to do that, because I will do that. Like, I love your company, and I think it's going to be really important and powerful, and it is going to change the world. And so today, when I meet an entrepreneur and I feel that way, I tell them that way. Ah, the more expressive Jeremy Liu. (laughs) All right, Jeremy, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been really interesting. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews I've done with Rent the Runway CEO Jennifer Hyman, former chief data scientist DJ Patel, and Tusk Holdings CEO Bradley Tusk, just to name a few. All those interviews and more are at recode.net slash decode. Now that you're done with this, why not try one of our other podcasts? Recode Media with Peter Kafka comes out every Thursday. On Fridays, I host Too Embarrassed to Ask along with Lauren Good of The Verge. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from our events like The Code Conference, Peter Kafka's Code Medium, and Jason Del Rey's Code Commerce. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Digital Media, which distributes the show. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. Remember to subscribe to the show and leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday with another great guest. Tune in then. <laughs>